Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us from Portland, Oregon, will be Dr. Saad Jazrawi. Saad is a gastroenterologist. He's a tummy doctor. He's going to talk about tummy troubles, digestive diseases, and everything else that can happen from stem to stern that doesn't go the way it's supposed to. So, Andrew, we really haven't covered this subject before, but we are now. Why might our listeners be interested? I, I'm really excited myself. I, I always joke, I'm passionate about colon health. And uh, I think it's, I'm not, it's in all seriousness, but also it's kind of funny to say that. Um, everybody's got abdominal pain from time to time. And you wouldn't believe, Tom, maybe you would, the large number, number of people who have regularly occurring abdominal complaints, pain, you know, of different varieties. And it's a bit of a mystery for a lot of folks where my belly hurts. Is it this? Is it that? How do we figure it out? And so it's one of the things I enjoy a lot talking to patients about, helping patients with. Uh, but it is very challenging. And thank goodness mm -hmm. we have GI specialists to help us sort out when you get down to it. It's like, okay, what's exactly causing this? But for, for listeners out there who have abdominal complaints, you're going to love this episode and just know that there is hope. And there is an answer. And you might you might stumble onto some information today to point you in the right direction. So as I like to point out to my children, much to their chagrin, topologically human beings are donuts. There is a hole through the middle of us all the way through. And you just can't see it, which is probably a good thing. But we're going to go on an all-expenses-paid tour through it, courtesy of Andrew here. So, Andrew, <laughs> the digestive tract starts at the mouth. So what happens in the mouth that helps us to absorb nutrients. Yeah. Well, first thing is you chew up your food. And uh, it sounds easy. Like even little babies can do it most of the time. My kids chew their food. Um, but the, the thing is, is it's not an easy process. There's a huge process to it, even in, in so far as forming a bolus of the food and getting ready to swallow it. Very complicated. There's a whole area of speech language pathology dedicated to helping people with problems here. And there's even enzymes that are released, namely amylase is the big one to work with carbohydrates to start digesting your food, even when it's in your mouth. We also get a little bit of the light pace as well to start digesting fats. But the biggest thing is getting it into a food bolus that is semi-solid that can be swallowed. And then it goes through the pharynx, um, you know, the back of the throat, and then down through the esophagus. So is the esophagus anything more than a tube that sends the food south? Oh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it obviously is the conduit, but it's a dynamic conduit. It, it's pulling the food down and pushing it down. And not only that, but also trying to keep the food down so that it doesn't come back up, which would be uh, not a great day. It's a bad day. In other words, it. it'll do the same thing if you're hanging upside down, won't it? That It will. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. It, it's So it doesn't care what way gravity says is down. It gets it to the stomach. So then what is happening in the stomach to get those nutrients where they belong? Yeah, the, the first thing is we've, we've got basically the lower esophageal sphincter where the esophagus meets the stomach. And it's kind of got two, two levels. There's an actual muscular sphincter that closes the esophagus to keep the food down. But then that is also right where your diaphragm, the, the muscle that helps you breathe, the diaphragm meets right there and forms just a small hole as well to keep your stomach down. All of these things, obviously, God designed to keep the food moving south as it's supposed to. And when you get to the stomach, not only do you have the food that you swallowed, but you have a lot of acid, hydrochloric acid, and that also breaks down the food as well. You can have a little bit of absorption of, of things in the stomach. Most of that happens later. It's mostly about using this hydrochloric acid to break down the food into smaller building blocks that'll building blocks that'll be digested later. And then the first section of the small intestine is met after the stomach empties. And that first part is called the duodenum. What special things are going on there? Yeah, an awful lot. The the duodenum or duodenum, some people say, it's about 
20, 25 centimeters right off of the stomach, right as soon as you go through the pylorus. And basically, this is where all the chyme from the stomach, that partially digested soupy food mix, um, kind of looks like a beef stew, in, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> that goes into the, the, the duodenum there. And that's also where we start getting enzymes. Most of the enzymes are made in the pancreas, and they come out of what we call the sphincter of Odi. And that's not the only thing. We also get bile that comes out through this little hole and squirts into the duodenum, where basically it starts digesting on kind of a microscopic level these, these nutrients that we've ingested. Well, then you've got the rest of the small intestine, which has two different segments. I don't know if there's a big difference, the jejunum and then the ileum. So what's happening in the jejunum and then the ileum? Yeah, the, they perform basically very similar functions of absorption. Uh, both of them, the, the ileum is actually about three meters long and the jejunum's about two and a half meters long or so. Uh, and the jejunum does most of the absorption. It absorbs sugars, amino acids, fatty acids. The ileum absorbs a little bit of those, but more bile acids and B12. So this is that small bowel, which when you add up the whole small bowel, we're looking at three to five meters. It's quite a long thing, but obviously it's wrapped back and forth, back and forth, back and forth into this big ball of, of bowel. And then it empties into the colon, something that you get to look at frequently for your patient's health. What does the colon do? Yeah, the colon, the main function of the colon is to get water out of the stool into the body again. Because you can imagine as you're drinking things, it goes in your stomach, that water's got to get absorbed. And then all of the stool products as well, when it's leaving the small bowel, it's very much a thin liquid, um, very thin liquid. And, and at the end of it, obviously, stool frequently is thicker than a liquid. And that process occurs by the water being drawn out through the colonic wall back into the body. And the final segment, the anus. That's right. That's a one-way sphincter, keeping things out uh, that are out and letting things pass. And so that's basically kind of the top to bottom. We, we also should give an honorable mention to the appendix, uh, which is right <laughs> where the small and large bowels meet. And uh, lots of hypotheses about the appendix. If it's kind of a, a remnant that, of something that we used to use and we don't use anymore. Um, I've also seen a hypothesis out there that this is where good bacteria kind of can be stored, even if you have, say, a bad bout of diarrhea and everything ah. gets wiped out. You've got a little bit of good bacteria hiding down here that can come out and recolonize. And the appendix is like a very small sock sticking off the wall of the colon at the cecum. Uh, looks totally useless. A lot of people don't have them. But uh, the theory is, is it probably performs some function that we don't completely understand. So always more to learn. Andrew, that was just as much as a trip would have been in the magic school bus with Miss Frizzle, <laughs> which now takes us to our medical trivia question category of the day, which is gastrointestinal etymology. Yeah, I just lie awake at night with the opportunity to say those two words online, gastrointestinal <laughs> etymology. And so the question, one part of the intestine is named after the Latin number 12. What part is it, and what does the number 12 have to do with it? Mm. We'll get to that at the end of the show. But before that, we'll have Saad Jizrawi on with gastrointestinal common problems. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We have with us now Dr. Saad Jizrawi. He received his medical school training originally in Baghdad, Iraq, then completed more medical training in Oregon, New York, and Texas. He then specialized in interventional gastroenterology with a focus on pancreas and bile disease, as well as digestive cancer treatment and staging. He joined the faculty of Oregon Health Sciences University as an assistant professor. He's a cradle Catholic and grew up in the Eastern Chaldean Rite. He's currently president of the Portland Guild of the Catholic Medical Association in Oregon, and he tries to combine his faith and his work to be a better Catholic and physician, and with not, when not working, he likes spending time with his wife, Grace, and his four-year-old and one-year-old children. Saad, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Andrew. Good to see you guys. So, the digestive system. Yep. What was it about the digestive system that intrigued you so much that you decided to devote your professional life to it? 
uh, it started the first time I was doing research at, in Oregon at the time and about liver disease, and, and I was fascinated about hepatitis C at the time and the intellectual approach to medical to, to the many of the liver diseases. So it's like, oh, I love that field. And I looked at the ah. people who were doing the specialty, and they were all... Uh, you know, happy and excited and, 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 you know, it brings energy. It's like, I want, I want to do this special thing. I want to be, I want to be this person, you know, 10, 10 years later. So kind of oh. the journey. Yeah, nobody told me it's actually a little bit longer than that, but it's, uh, it worked out to be a very good uh, choice and I'm very happy about it. Man, that's great. What, what gives you the most joy when you're caring for patients with GI problems? Spending time with patients. I mean, despite despite the fact that my specialty is a very uh, it's a very tool and, and technology driven. I mean, it's like uh, if you, it's if you like video games, this is the specialty that is the next in in, in line for for, for medicine. <laughs> it's the next always, level. <laughs> it's the it's the it's it could be the next level. It's basically trying to go with a scope into the end of the colon or to the small bowel into the um, you know the biliary duct. You're you're looking for targets and you're either you know you know sampling them or removing them. So it's it's a it's a it's a lot of hands working, a lot of technical things you use. So that's kind of the fun. Then you have the intriguing, uh, the intellectual part, which is, you know, talking to the patients, trying to solve a problem that does not have a, 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 you know, physically easy diagnosable uh, thing. Uh, So that's, that's sometimes the, the, the fun part to me uh, is as much as I enjoy the technical part, I enjoy talking to the patients a lot. Now, Saad, I remember think Nintendo has not come out with a colonoscopy video game yet. (laughs) Uh, I, I don't understand why they haven't done that. <laughs> a, a disclaimer: When I was early in my early in my training, I struggled a little bit in the scoping. Like, and my boss says, "Buy a video game." So I bought a video game, and I, I wasn't used to be playing that much. So I was like, I played video games, just kind of just teaches eye hand coordination, and I got better a lot after that. <laughs> now I remember <laughs> in medical school, one of the funnest acronyms I learned was ERCP. Endoscopic yeah. retrograde cholangeal pancreatogram. What's even more amazing is what it stands for. Explain to the audience what that is. I mean, that's just insane that it can even be done. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the normal function of the pancreas and bile duct is basically, I'm going to use the word dump or put pancreatic and, and liver secretion enzymes into, the, into the, the digestive system. And that's how they connect through a pinhole uh, opening. So what we do is retrograde, which means going backward in, in, into the, those ducts, trying to solve a problem. And it's but you have to go down through the mouth to get there. Yeah, so that's when the endoscopic, which is so so, go with a camera through the mouth into the stomach into the small bowel, and that's the pinhole of the uh, the emptying of the of the pancreas and bile duct is into that opening into that lumen. And when we see that opening, and then we try, and, and it's uh, by the way, the camera does not have an. You, when you go, you don't see in front of you; you see on the side of you because that's where the hole is on the side. Uh, so it takes a lot oh. of training to finally be able to get there. But once you get there, you put the uh, access. So that's where the endoscopic, the E, retrograde is going backward. And then uh, either pancreas or the uh, cholangia, uh, which is the bile duct exam. It's the best way to examine those organs because any other organ, any other way, which is you would think going the, you know, anti-grade would be the best, which is the normal path. Actually, it is means you have to poke them from outside, penetrate the liver capsule, and then get into get into the bile duct, or uh, uh, I used to, uh, or you try to get it through the pancreas, which is a lot harder. Wow! So we were a Catholic show. There's passages in the Bible about just about everything. Is there anything you like that the Bible has to say about the digestive system? <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I this is a little bit more of a, of a like I, I kept thinking about that, and I found uh, uh, the passage from First uh, Timothy five twenty three. It says, "Drink no longer water, but use little wine for the stomach's sake uh, and and thine <laughs> often in, infirmities." It's basically Saint Paul telling uh, Timothy. Uh, I, I would just say instead of wine, maybe uh, cognac and and, and not in excess <laughs> could be a good therapy for anything you want. It's, it's, it's a tough one. I have to prepare next time a little bit better than than that. But, but it's, it's it's the best thing. I would I can advise that. Okay. <laughs> Very good. 
Can, can you walk through, you had mentioned GI is a technical specialty, so many different tools. Can you talk to us a little bit about the general tools you would use, scopes and whatnot? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was thinking about that. What is, how could I describe a, 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 a GI to, an, to, to, to the lay person? And what would I tell them with the scope sizes and, and the thing? And, and the best way I can think about it is um, uh, the way... Um, you have like your your kitchen tools. You have different sizes of pans, different sizes of forks, and different. So it, we have we have that. It, 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 in, in principle, they are all the same. It's a camera connected with fiber optics all the way connects to the scope, which has a handle, turns it. You know, magnificently, the Japanese perfected that science. So the so the best two or three companies actually all of them are japanese companies mm-hmm. and uh, you basically olympus is the most known but so you turn you move the uh, the, the dials and the the tip of the scope changes direction and then you adva- advance it into the digestive system uh, it's a long track it's a very long track actually and uh, but the thank god the most common problems we have are within the reach it's within the first you know mm. uh, two feet on the upper digestive and the lower the, in the lowest side the most uh, the most distal three feet with those t- scopes we have we can easily get those the remaining you know 20 feet in between them is hard access we do access it but most of the times it's, it's a lot less commonly needed to do so how often will you use uh, an imaging study, like a radiology test, as opposed to using a scope? Well, it depends on the things. And, you know, sometimes some of our problems needs imaging. Some of the imaging needs eventually advocates to, for us to do uh, scoping. So in, in, mm-hmm. in, in general, um, I, I would say 50-50, but a lot of our, our patients by the time, and especially what I do is, is more of a pancreatic biliary work. Uh, a lot of my patients already have, if they don't have imaging, I can order imaging. So almost 100% of my patients are going to have imaging. Uh, and when they come to see me, it means they're going to need to have uh, more intervention, like endoscopically. In, in How the, nervous the or anxious are patients before they have a scope done? And what do you do to help calm them down? There is there are two categories of patients I deal with. One of them is the the regular screening colonoscopy, and that is the um, you know they they want they they want a you know clean bill of health, and the the most of the times I you know the they patients have either reached out and looked into the internet for something and they are more anxious, or they are. Um, kind of by the time they've seen me, they've talked to their neighbor and they reassure them. But most of the times, it's a very good conversation. Uh, it's very easy to explain. I, I usually try to break the ice with a, some, you know, small comments here and there and, and try to know, to build a relationship because it's a very, it's a very fast paced work. So that's for the mm-hmm. regular endoscopy, regular colonoscopy. Uh, but it's 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 the the anxiety is mostly by building a relationship with that patient, even on a short short um, period. Then allow them to ask questions and and comfort them. The harder one is the what I do more on my work, which is the pancreatobiliary, which is examination of the pancreas and the bile duct. And those patients are usually are more of a long you know, either chronic problems do they have or actually they're sick with rule out pancreatic cancer or rule out anything more serious. Uh, that group is, is, is a harder, uh, you know, you, I definitely want to advocate as much time to explain to them the procedure, you know, give them some comfort and, uh, you know, build a rapport because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, sometimes I'm going to have to call them back down the line to explain to them the results, that, which always is more complicated. So one of the things we want to do in this show is we want to get into common GI problems. And, you know, I get to work in family medicine. I feel like we're talking about GI problems all the time, saying like, hey, we've got to get you to a GI specialist. Say, for example, you know, the the one that I feel like I hear a lot, abdominal pain, my belly hurts. How do you work that up? So... uh Depends on who sends you. Uh, primary care is, is the easier one. Usually, it's by the ER. By the time they come in, they already have the casket, and a lot of our work cut off for us, uh, and it has to be scoped. But in, somebody with abdominal pain, it's a lot of the information. The, so if somebody comes in, and, and like if I'm going to buy something, and somebody knew I'm a doctor, say, "Hey, let me ask you about abdominal pain. What would I do about that?" And my <laughs> two important questions: 
easy to, I wouldn't say 100%, but it's like the easy to rule out. I say, does it get worse with eating? Does it get better, worse or better on eating, worse or better with uh, with with bowel movement? If neither of those, you know, you're 95% less likely to be digestive, not 100% because there's always something that is nagging pain, has nothing to do with that, including pancreatic cancer sometimes has nothing to do with, with eating or um, or bowel movement. That said, those two questions, the first two, you just rule out the digestive uh, symptom relationship to the to it. That's one easy one. Then we start so, to work. So that out. way, so I understand this. That means if they if pain does not get better or worse with eating or bowel movement, it's probably not a serious problem, or it's probably not related to the digestive system or both. It's probably not related to the digestive. I would worry more about you know. I, I mean, because we get to see patients with back pain, you know, refer right. to the mm. uh, to the to the to the kidney problems affecting the digestive. You know, affect affects the belly pain. Yeah, and uh, once the we kind of think the abdominal the, the abdominal pain is related to a digestive system, then we start to try to rule out other you know where where how do we approach them? You know, if the symptoms are related to eating nausea and vomiting, then it's mostly an upper digestive. Um, if I was a primary care or, um, you know, in the, in the, in the first line of, of, of seeing the patients, I'd rather make sure first a trial of, of acid suppression uh, could help. Uh, you know, it, it helps to relieve, you know, and avoid sending patients that they don't need to be seen. Um, sometimes imaging could be needed, especially if there is some concern of weight loss or in the, on the older age group patients. I, I start to worry about uh, something more serious or if they have anemia. We, we may not need imaging, but they need to see somebody in the specialty. Um, and the lower digestive, it starts to be associated with um, bowel movement issues. Again, they still going to need to see a digestive, um, digestive specialist or a GI. I, th- I think before that, if, again, if um, the easy approach for most problems is try fiber. Uh, if you have a, a loose bowel movement, try fiber. If you have a hard bowel movement, try fiber. I mean, whatever you do, it's, it's fiber. Uh, the solution for most, um, most uh, actually, most digestive problems get solved with fiber. And, and for those, I mean, mostly irritable bowel syndrome. Not everybody can uh, tolerate fiber. So, again, at, at least a reasonable percentage, a decent percentage will be solved with fiber and pepsid or omeprazole. Okay, so, Saad. You gave a ton of pearls within there. Let's. I just want to unpack it for people that can't, that aren't used to listening to medical information so much. Upper GI problem. First thing to try at home if pain's getting worse with eating is acid suppression. Reduce the acid getting from the stomach up into the esophagus. Is that right? And from how the can they do the that? Yeah. And how can they do that over the counter? I would say Pepsi. I would, I would just caution people. It's like, you don't just like, oh, I took it and felt well and let's stay on it. You know, generally speaking, the recommendation now is like two weeks trial. And I will try not even omeprazole, try Pepsi. Omeprazole is a little bit stronger medication. It's, it's pretty safe. But, you know, if, if you start to feel well, there are, you know, in our, in my calculation, there are things I wouldn't just treat it blindly. I would may want to do a further digging, you know, and, and these comes into these, uh, you know, in the approach and your primary care provider will know that um, your, you know, I would know that, but, you know, as a, a lay person, probably try Pepsi for two weeks happens many times, you know, people get too much acidity for for a reason or another, whether it's stress or whether it is, you know, got, you know, uh, it re- reflux acidity. And once it happens, it takes, you know, about five, seven days to get better. So, you know, in the meantime, you either want to sit and suffer or take the Pepsi and you start <laughs> to feel better, then get out and uh, go about life. But generally speaking, that's usually the approach. The things to not to do if you start to see vomiting blood, if you're, you know, black stool, like we call signs of bleeding, or if there are weight loss that we can't explain, just talk to your primary doctor. So when you're talking about acid suppression, we're trying to turn down the acid. Mainly they're trying to treat like too much acid or reflux, right? What, what happens uh, during stress when I'm stressed, I increase acid secretion. We, I mean, at, at stomach acidity is usually about, you know, it could drop to two 
during eating, uh, after, soon after eating. So the acidity, and that's what breaks uh, breaks down food. It helps to break down the food uh, by uh, by secretion by by chemical breakage. And then there is the uh, mechanical, which is the stomach. What it does, it churns until it breaks it down into tiny, tiny, small uh, pieces. Uh, acid is is what helps in that process. You don't have to have 100% acidity to to make it work. You can slow down the acidity. So if you take pepsid, you can probably get the acidity down to three instead of two, or four, four out of instead of two. What happens in terms of reflux is when you eat, so the stomach, no, stomach, the esophagus seals itself against the stomach, it protects itself. But the problem each time you eat, it leaks acid up. And when mm. that does, it now it, it causes injury. And if that area is raw from you know from being under stress and other things, it starts to continue to get worse and worse. And you know, breaking that acid, you know, um, secretion a little bit, it'll decrease the amount of acid coming back to the stomach each time you you swallow. You could be swallowing saliva; it could happen. So there's a lot of things that could be even in, you know as incidental. But the problem is when it's stressed, it could become more painful. People use terms like acid reflux or heartburn or GERD kind of interchangeably. What what are the difference between those things and how do you think of them? So so just going to backtrack one second here, actually two things that comes to mind. One, in, in acid, first, heartburn is the most common symptom almost. I forgot like that one time it's like 30% of the population have it on a monthly basis. You know, so wow. it's the most common symptom, um, and it's a feeling of a heartburn or feel of food coming up into the esophagus or to the throat. That's the reflux. Now, the the we call it GERD if, if for those, uh, and that's if it has inflammation with it. There's a lot of patients will have no inflammation even when you go there. Like people have a real reflux, and there are other ways to test for that. We call it pH testing in other ways. And but you go there and it looks as pristine as a normal person, and it's like, well, I still have the pain. And you do the additional testing, which is motility or a pH testing, and then you can see actually acid or even alkaline. Sometimes too much alkaline goes up into the esophagus and causes hmm. uh, injury in that area. And it is uh, usually a patient has a mark like a, a pointer that they could point, and actually each time they click their 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 device is the time when the acid or the alkaline going there. So. Um, it's it's uh, you, there are two types, which is the uh, GERD, which is the, with the inflammation and without the inflammation. So sometimes even without it, they still benefit from the treatment, which is the pepsid. That's why try pepsid first. If it works, you avoid the seeing a gastroenterologist. And then the other end, you said take fiber. How much for how long before you see your doctor? Okay, so the Western diet is so there. There is things we do in our Western world that we unfortunately contribute to our in I would say digestive problems, and it's a very common problem, which is decrease motility. Our mobility is decreased, so we need to be mobile to have a bowel movement. We need to drink water enough a large amount to allow us to have a bowel movement uh, because you have to realize 99% of the water we drink is still going to be reabsorbed. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that you have to, but the, you have to have something to allow the bowel movement to pass, the content of the stool to pass. And thirdly, you have to have something that stays in. If you, if, 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 if I eat chocolate, protein, and carbohydrates, the, the digestive carbo, digestive carbohydrates, and I will have no bowel movement. I will have only sloughed mucosa coming out. The reason is, <laughs> I mean, but that's that's going to take forever to pass. So it takes it takes for the takes forever. So what you do, you need fiber. The undigested fiber, undigested uh, carbohydrate, which is the fiber will eventually pass the digestive. It works as a like the carrier, the train that carries the uh, the materials we don't like, sometimes unwanted fats, toxins. It takes it with it as it passes the digestive system. You will need about 30 grams a day. 
you know, but I would say anything anything above twenty grams is great. Uh, I hear I hear people like, well, I'm a vegan. It's like yes, but you're you're eating you know things that doesn't have enough fiber. You know, you even called vegetarian, but you're, you're eating things that does not have enough fiber. Uh, I think the best best source of fiber is green uncooked uh, lettuce and 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 anything uncooked greens. Uh, broccoli is great, but there's a lot of other sources of fiber. It, it's it's not just that. I mean, but in general, eat thirty grams. How do we know if you are eating enough and whether it's it it? I, I say trial trial you know add get the men i mean i'm sorry using olympus and madame muslims like all these companies names <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know try something that has fiber but Menamucil would be a good source um one of the brands that but any fiber and try a couple of, you know for for two to three weeks uh, unlike pepsid which works fast within a day or two uh Fiber it takes about a month to really balance itself into the digestive system, and that's what one of the biggest. Uh, you know, we try to sell this to the patients. Like whatever you do, don't stop, don't start fast, because you really don't know. It's like a, <laughs> you know, it's like a it, the the downstream. It takes two or three days to to show itself. So by the time you you it's like well three days nothing happened. Increase this like oh then then now you're gonna have over and all of a sudden you back away fast and we roll, we run into this seesaw effect. So slower is better be patient this is great information and we're going to have more of it after the break here on dr doctor and we are back today on dr doctor and we're talking about the gi tract Saad, can you maybe just tell us what are some healthy eating habits for for gi health uh, I think we cover the, um, I can think of the lower digestive system is, is pretty good. I think the upper digestive is, is to, for, for, you know, what can we do? And what, I, what do I advise my reflux, my uh, patients? Uh, a few things to, to you know, and, and the, by, as a disclaimer, lifestyle modification works only so far in, in the reflux. Um and uh, what it means, you could do only so much. Unfortunately, you're still going to need a, 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 like a, a medication to buy you time. For uh, reflux, for those who have persistent reflux or uh, either despite uh, medication or they don't want to take medication, can they get by by not? Uh, I would say one of the things you do, don't... Um, and take too much juices. Juices are high in acids. Acids eventually stays in the stomach, stimulates more, you know, it, it, it's, it's a recipe for more acidity. Acid reflux causes more, eventually it goes from the stomach periodically into the esophagus, causes uh, the, the uh, symptom of heartburn and pain. What, what um, about uh, apple cider vinegar? for reflux i i've heard people do that i i have no i some people swear by it i've seen their esophagus looks bad so is there anything we can do about when we eat or what types of foods to avoid and then th that's a good question actually the, the other thing is you can i mean i don't know where intermittent fasting does i don't have data to tell whether it decreases i'm, I'm i'll bet it probably could help more just because you have a period long period of not things escapes from because the more if we nibble a lot you're allowing more each time you swallow basically is an opportunity for contents from the stomach to leak back to the esophagus and every mm. time that happens is an acidity injury you know some esophagus will never have a problem but some will have a problem and so will you have, have just as much problem if it's a cracker versus water in other words, is just oh. drinking water affect the reflux? Absolutely. Actually, what I tell people is stop chewing gums because they oh. chewing gums. What they're doing is actually they're putting a, a saliva, and each time you're unknowingly swallowing saliva is an acidity coming up. And that's mm. what sometimes people say, well, I, when I take Tums, it feels great. It's like, yes, but what it does, Tums goes in, Every time you're doing that, and they chew comes one after the other. But the problem is, each time you're swallowing, you think you're washing it out, but then acid comes back again, and then it feeds it into. It. So it works for simple things, not big problems. When you or not big problems, just any mucosal injury, you'll need something stronger. Uh, so uh, eating maybe a longer interval between foods and longer interval between eating and you know go on a recliner or go into in, in bed because uh if people who eat late and go to bed are i mean guaranteed to have reflux will they feel it not everybody but some people will feel it so for those who have symptoms of reflux it's like 
don't eat and go sleep immediately or, or recline because that's how many hours in between is best minimum two, but, okay. you know, and I don't do that. I mean, I fin I finish my late day late and I'm eating and I go crash immediately. But if <laughs> when, when things are not working out well, I'm definitely making those two hours and better is four. I mean, there are, I mean, I know people who eat at before six and they'll sleep at 10. It's like, you know, that's and I worked out. I mean, they may stay away from medication because of them. Weight, weight reduction helps. Um, the other thing that they could be doing is avoiding uh, alcoholic beverages, avoiding, especially uh, wine. I mean, as much as wine, you know, <laughs> talked about, about the benefits, wine is, is increased acidity, caffeine increased acidity, and uh, peppermint. Uh, it does not increase acidity, but what it does, it decreases the, uh, the, the, the tight gastroesophageal junction so it loosens and and actually what it does basically allows acid to come back and, and cause more injury okay so let's talk about a common problem that uh, parents see in their children that even adults might have and that's diarrhea how, how should somebody well first of all what is diarrhea versus just a loose stool and what should people do about it when should they see a doctor what should they try before seeing a doctor well i mean most most for most so diarrhea is less commonly I see. We and we, when we see them, it's a bigger problem because we're right. talking about inflammatory bowel disease and things like that. But if you're an average, uh, you know, a, a, a layperson and 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 get a diarrhea, if it's a one day, I wouldn't worry about it. Or what's a diarrhea? It's it's it's. I remember the it used to be four five hundred grams or more than three bowel movements, and. And, and that's what I usually tell patients. Nobody weighs their weight for a bowel movement. That's fine. But I was, so I was like, how many bowel movements? Because if people define things differently. Uh, constipation also the same thing. So I was like, what do you mean by that? And, and actually most, uh, most symptoms and try to f decipher the misnomer things because right. it, 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 then we're, we're addressing the right problem. So, uh, but, the, but if they have multiple bowel movements for one day, hey, you could be eat, eat something and, and it's gone. If, if, if somebody says, well, I have months and months of, of diarrhea, then I worry about it. At least do some basic investigative. It could be a blood test. It could be stool testing. Somebody says, you know what? Go ahead. Is, is there anything over the counter for diarrhea? People always talk about Imodium, but would you recommend that for people to try? I, I So I've done missions and, and when traveling, I take a chunk of Pepto-Bismol. Again, I'm, I'm, advocating, I'm advocating companies, but it works magic. It has an antibacterial effect. It has anti-nausea effect, and uh, it's great. You take it out and try some Pepto-Bismol. If, if that's really bothering you, the diarrhea, a couple of days, two days, not more. If it continues, then, yeah, seek something. Just a disclaimer of this. Uh, Pepto-Bismol, change the stool black. So if you take, if, if somebody takes it, be careful. If you see stool black, nothing bad. It's just <laughs> the, you know, it's just the, it's the Pepto-Bismol working. Um, but, it, 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 you know, I, you know it, that's one good thing. Probiotics are amazing. Oh yes, uh, we we killed all these bacteria in our gut. We we in the you know where I grew up and and in many countries in the world the the yogurt has a lot of bacteria. We in in the, in the sake of protection and cleanliness, we pasteurized everything and killed any bug that could be growing in the yogurt. Uh, one option is we've been adding probiotics, and those work actually. They do help. So people who have you know diarrhea, imbalance of gut uh, symptoms, bloating is a big deal. Um, try try uh, probiotics. Works in uh, like a charm. And which one is best? This one, I really don't have a solution for that because there's so many brands. Most, it's not most, they are not regulated by the FDA. So trial of error. And if this one works, stay with it. How for, how much do you try? Try, let's say, one month supply so you know. But if it works, stick with it. I mean, um, just don't buy the most expensive. That's the thing. <laughs> a, a, lot, a lot of people that I, I know like to take probiotics, almost like a multivitamin, just for health. Is that a good idea or not necessary? Uh, I don't. I, I, it might be unnecessary if they don't have symptoms of digestive imbalance. Uh, IBS is a very common disease, so 
if they have irritable bowel syndrome, yes, they need to. But if not, you know, it's it's. I again, I, I say don't don't again, don't put your retirement in buying all these. Uh, you know, and it, it's it's mo many of those probiotics. It says you know twenty billion of bacteria, but who me who measured it and who says it's going to survive <laughs> the acidity of the stomach? Stomach is going to kill. I mean, that's what the point of the acidity of the stomach kills any bug it goes into there. So, you know, I, I I'm not a you know I think it helps especially for patients with irritable bowel syndrome, especially. But I wouldn't go into into religiously pursuing that because it it's not. I mean, you actually take me to another topic, which is the microbiome. Biome, which is again that, that could be another five-hour conversation, and we don't know where we're going. But they, they're finding out the bacterial composition of your digestive system could could contribute to your obesity, you know, your depression and anxiety and other things. And you know, but the science is so new on this, so many many years of work to to know where we're going with there. Well, speaking of microbiome, way back when I was in medical school, I did research on something uh, that was then called Campylobacter pylori, then discovered to be Helicobacter pylori. And there's actually a bacterium that can live in your stomach in that pH, and does it contribute to ulcers or reflux? So H. pylori, um, it is it's actually a carcinogenic. Uh, it's a very uh, the person who uh, I think William Marshall who discovered it. Barry Marshall. Uh, Barry Marshall. Uh, Barry Marshall. Uh, I met you. him at a conference. Yes. Yes, and and the way he discovered it, he he found it, and he had to swallow the the uh, the the uh, bacteria and developed an ulcer, and that's how they found uh, that is the uh, he got a Nobel Prize for that. Uh, the but the idea but the idea the idea behind that is stomach cancer was one of the most common cancers worldwide and finding a solution a, a curable disease um, was was a, a, like a revolutionary we don't have it as common in the united states but it does happen uh, it's a water it's a bacteria that grows in that resides in water reservoir so in if you travel international i have actually recently patient who continues to travel and to third world countries uh, as a missionary but the problem is each time he goes he gets a h pylori comes back and we treat him and he gets that's the second or third time so it's like oh, take wow. your bottle with you if you take a bottle of water you're protected bottled water is not going to be at the place i mean i hope um so it it is uh, known to cause ulceration and even if you treat the ulcer with with acid suppression that chronic inflammation is eventually and it, it does work in um it, it creates an um, carcinogenic chemical at the level of the mucosa that eventually they develop gastric cancer it is wow. not common to clear to clarify it is not common in the united states i still get you know a lot of patients diagnosed with it either from being traveling abroad or born abroad or maybe lived in a very unsanitary world place at some point in their life but it is not common i don't want to send a message out there that it is the reason again one in i don't know 50 in one in 100 endoscopy i'll probably see one with infection and so what's the relationship between h pylori and ulcers stomach ulcers what it what it does it, it changes the chemical breaks the mucosa at the area and eventually mm. once it breaks it becomes an it becomes basically well, what percent so, of ulcers are due to h pylori in the united states oh it's a very small so okay. uh, let me yeah so let me the ulcer so the stomach is it, again it's kind of uh, it's our 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 body is is created in a beautiful way if we look at it from from a, from a, from science and creation it stomach secretes acidity down to below two sometimes the pH, but what it does it the the lining of the stomach is protected from the uh, it protected from what's inside the stomach by a thin, a thin or a thick layer you can call it of a mucus very thick mucus that layer of mucus is what protects the stomach on the other hand if they if they have h pylori that mucosa that layer of muc, uh, mucus is broken and that's how mm. the stomach uh, ulcers develop because they break in the mucosa but how do most the, ulcers develop if it's not due to h pylori it happens because on most of the times there are two i think i can think of common causes stress and who's not stressed but you know stress and how how your body responds to stress and uh and taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs mm. alcohol i would say number three and, and the heavy alcoholism is another cause 
And the non-steroid, what it does, also mucosal injury, it causes local ischemic injury and eventually ulceration. Man, I love it. There's so much stuff to talk about. It's a, it's tough to know where else to dive. I know we, we talked a little bit about diarrhea. The flip side of that is constipation. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that and starting off with what is constipation? Because a lot of people might use that term differently. Oh, the same thing. Well, this one, thankfully, they don't have to weigh, but it says one bowel movement every three days. Uh, it's and it's most patients sometimes they use the word to describe difficulty passing bowel movement, and that is not the constipation. But it's it's this it, we I kind of it guides me into the fact that either they're not drinking enough water, that either they are uh, not having enough fiber. But I, again, I don't want to say that is the most, the, the only reason. There are so many other reasons that you could develop constipation. Sometimes patients with diabetes could develop the constipation. Same thing, uh, patients with uh, thyroid problems could develop constipation. Sometimes, uh, actually, you know, tumors could be uh, causing what we call a pseudo obstruction. But and oh, basically, sure. basically, yeah. So you, it feels it's, it's called pseudo diarrhea. It feels like your patient either have a diarrhea or have a constipation. Actually, it's an obstruction by a by a tumor. So mm. there are other causes and. The other thing is the digestive system throughout our life changes motility. And some people say, you know what, I used to be good and now I don't have a good bowel. Like, you know, and it's, it's like your knee. My knee, uh, knees work well, but at some point it's not going to have, you know, dysfunctional issues. And, uh, you know, and, and sometimes you need uh, my glasses. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wearing contact today and with at some point my glasses were great. And then all of a sudden now it's, it doesn't work as good because it's, Wear and tear. And now what you need, a little bit of fiber, more water than you used to, maybe walking. But doing that, sometimes that solves most of the problem. There are other reasons for that. It takes more digging to find what it is. A lot of times you can do some basic panels of calcium and thyroid function and things like that to make sure we're not missing some easy reversible things. And then we can dig deeper into, you know, motility dysfunction. And that could be a big kind of form. And then something that I've heard before is that the char on top of barbecued food is <laughs> making us more at risk for colon cancer. What do you know about that, Saad? Uh, it's, you know, actually, red meat itself is a, is a risk for colon cancer. That said, I, I eat red meat. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for you know, for barbecue is the easiest thing that I could help my wife in. in uh, and <laughs> so I, I, I enjoy it. And um, I'd say, yes, it could be harmful. That is absolutely, uh, there's been studies to show that, you know, but again, I, What's I think- What's the absolute if, if, risk? How big is the absolute risk? I, I don't, I'm not sure if I know that, to be honest. I'm, I'm sure somebody has done something and published it, but I'm not sure. It's It's been kind of, since I was in medical school, so it's been a while, it's been known to be that. That said, people still eat barbecue. I think the most important thing I say, if you see, I mean, if, you, if you're cooking and you always have to just clean up your barbecue periodically, maybe once a year, once, it depends how much you cook, you, you cook, but just to make sure you don't have too much charring attached, because I don't think it's healthy anyway, and it could be something else. It could be the red meat itself. It could be anything else, but I, I compensate by going for a run after that. That should be fine. Good man. Well, thank you for a fun tour through the digestive system. This was a chocked full of practical advice for our patients. I think we'll probably have you on again, Saad. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Andrew. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question, and who other than Dr. Tom McGovern, homeschooling father that he is, is going to give us etymology that's related to the gastrointestinal system. I always say, you know, people feel like it's all Greek to me, but I think you're going to give us some Latin etymology, right, Tom? Yes, Andrew, I am. And the answer, I, I tried to kind of cue up the answer if you were listening carefully in the first segment, because I pronounced a word differently than the way Andrew did to try to give you a hint. And so the question is, one part of the intestine is named after the Latin word for the number 12. What part is it? It's the duodenum. So like a duodecagon has 12 sides. So the duodenum or duodenum was uh, identified back in, gosh, how long was this? The th let's see, the 14th century, because it was about the length of the width of 12 fingers. It was a width of 12 fingers long and thus given the name. Uh, Sounds like the same people who came up with 
horse yeah. measurements. They always measure horses and how hands, how many yeah. hands. Like, what were these people doing? You know, uh, they were using <laughs> parts of the body. They were using their ruler that they were carrying around with them, their body. Twelve and I think fingers. And I think a cubit, you know, back in Egyptian time was the length of the uh, pharaoh from his elbow to the tip of his middle finger was a cubit. Ah, there you go. And the English foot it. at the time would have been the, the length of the foot of the king. I might be making this up and we can have somebody call in and tell us the right answer to this. But there you go. <laughs> Duodenum, number 12. Andrew, you've got three, top three takeaways. Oh, I do. It was hard to narrow it down. Um, I would say as it relates to the GI tract, number one, he brought up a really good point to try and figure out, is this a GI problem? Most of them are going to be re related to eating or stooling. It might get better or get worse if you eat or have a bowel movement. So that'd be number one as far as, is this GI related? Um, number two, he said, kind of just general health principles, more fiber and more water. And good sources of, of dietary fiber, he said, is uncooked green veggies, uh, I'm talking about salads, broccoli, or things that he mentioned, and then more water. How much is too much? Hard to do. More water. Um, <laughs> and then number three, he had some really good practical tips. If people have symptoms of the upper GI tract, kind of nausea um, or, or heartburn, he said, go ahead and try some Pepsid over the counter for a couple of days or a week. If it goes on more than that, you, you want to go seek out care. And then he mentioned for diarrhea, he recommended trying some probiotics for a couple of days. And if it lasts for a day or two, no problem. But anything that's going on for a long period of time, you definitely want to seek out care because it could be could be something more serious. Yep. Full of practical advice. You might have to listen to it a second time to get all the pearls. And thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this in all our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top and you can search over 300 episodes by topic or guest. And we now have a YouTube link near the top of our homepage at drdoctor.org where you can see the video version of our podcast. While you're there, also click on submit a question if you have a question for us or an idea for a great future episode. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to our text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show. And tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.